Hello there, and welcome to this episode of Down to Sleep, the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. There's a new episode every Monday on Spotify or whatever podcast app you're listening on, and I hope that if you enjoy this podcast, you'll consider joining me on Patreon. For a few dollars a month, you can support this podcast and get two episodes a week instead of one, as well as completed audiobooks, and you get to vote on what book I read next. It's the start of a new month, so we're going to have a new poll really shortly, and it's the best time to join at patreon.com slash down to sleep. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, wherever you are in the world. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast, whether you're supporting on the Patreon, listening to the free version, it is an absolute pleasure to read to you. So thank you. Let's go ahead and tuck you in and take a nice deep breath because tonight we're continuing with Dracula. We start from where we left off. Jonathan Harker's journal has ended and we begin with chapter five, a letter from Miss Mina Murray to Miss Lucy Westenra on the 9th of May. My dearest Lucy, forgive my long delay in writing, but I have been simply overwhelmed with work. The life of an assistant schoolmistress is sometimes trying. I am longing to be with you, and by the sea, where we can talk together freely and build our castles in the air. I've been working very hard lately, because I want to keep up with Jonathan's studies. I've been practising shorthand very assiduously. When we are married, I shall be able to be useful to Jonathan, and if I can stenograph well enough, I can take down what he wants to say in this way and write it out for him on the typewriter, at which also I am practising very hard. He and I sometimes write letters in shorthand, and he's keeping a stenographic journal of his travels abroad. When I'm with you, I shall keep a diary in the same way. I don't mean one of those two pages to the week with Sunday squeezed in a corner diaries, but a sort of journal which I can write in whenever I feel inclined. I do not suppose there will be much of interest to other people, but it is not intended for them. I may show it to Jonathan some day, if there is in it anything worth sharing but it is really an exercise book. I shall try to do what I see lady journalists do, interviewing and writing descriptions, trying to remember conversations. I'm told that with a little practice, one can remember all that goes on, or that one hears during a day. However, we shall see. I will tell you of my little plans when we meet. I just had a few hurried lines from Jonathan from Transylvania. He's well, and will be returning in about a week. I am longing to hear all of his news. It must be so nice to see strange countries. I wonder if we, I mean Jonathan and I, shall ever see them together. There is the ten o'clock bell ringing. Goodbye. Your loving Mina. Tell me all the news when you write. You've not told me anything for a long time. I hear rumours, and especially of a tall, handsome, curly-haired man. A letter from Lucy to Mina My dearest Mina, I must say you tax me very unfairly with being a bad correspondent. 
I wrote to you twice since we parted, and your last letter was only your second. Besides, I have nothing to tell you. There is really nothing to interest you. Town is very pleasant just now, and we go a good deal to picture galleries, and for walks, and rides in the park. As to the tall, curly-haired man, I suppose it was the one who was with me at the last pop. Someone has evidently been telling tales. That was Mr. Holmwood. He often comes to see us, and he and Mama get on very well together. They have so many things to talk about in common. We met some time ago a man that would just do for you, if you were not already engaged to Jonathan. He is handsome, well-off, and of good birth. He is a doctor, and really clever, just fancy. He's only nine and twenty, and he has an immense lunatic asylum all under his own care. Mr. Holmwood introduced him to me, and he called here to see us, and often comes now. I think he is one of the most resolute men I ever saw, and yet the most calm. He seems absolutely imperturbable. I can fancy what a wonderful power he must have over his patients. He has a curious habit of looking one straight in the face, as if trying to read one's thoughts. He tries this on very much with me, but I flatter myself that he has got a tough nut to crack. I know that from my glass. Do you ever try to read your own face? I do, and I can tell you it's not a bad study, and gives you more trouble than you can well fancy if you've never tried it. He says that I afford him a curious psychological study, and I humbly think I do. I do not, as you know, take sufficient interest in dress to be able to describe the new fashions. Dress is a bore. That is slang again. But never mind, Arthur says it every day. There, it is all out. Mina, we've told all of our secrets to each other since we were children. We've slept together, we've eaten together, laughed and cried together. And now, though I have spoken, I would like to speak more. Mina, couldn't you guess? I love him. I'm blushing as I write. For although I think he loves me, he has not told me so in words. But Mina, I love him. I love him. I love him. There, that does me good. I wish I were with you, dear, sitting by the fire undressing, as we used to sit. I would try to tell you what I feel. I do not know how I am writing this even to you. I am afraid to stop, or I should tear up the letter and I don't want to stop, for I do so want to tell you all. Let me hear from you at once, and tell me all that you think about it. Mina, I must stop. Good night. Bless me in your prayers, and Mina, pray for my happiness. P.S. I need not tell you that this is a secret. Good night again. Lucy. Letter from Lucy to Mina. The 24th of May. My dearest Mina, thanks and thanks and thanks again for your sweet letter. 
it was so nice to be able to tell you and to have your sympathy. My dear, it never rains, but it pours. How true the old proverbs are. Here am I, who shall be twenty in September. And yet I never had a proposal till today. Not a real proposal. And today I have had three. Just fancy, three proposals in one day. Isn't it awful? I feel sorry, really and truly sorry for two of the poor fellows. Mina, I am so happy that I don't know what to do with myself and three proposals. But for goodness sake, don't tell any of the girls. They would be getting all sorts of extravagant ideas and imagining themselves injured and slighted if in their very first day at home they do not get six at least. Some girls are vain. You and I, Mina dear, who are engaged and are going to settle down soon soberly into old married women, can despise vanity. Well, I must tell you about the three, but you must keep it a secret, dear, from everyone, except, of course, Jonathan. You will tell him, because I would, if I were in your place, certainly tell Arthur. A woman ought to tell her husband everything. Don't you think so, dear? And I must be fair. Men like women, certainly their wives, to be quite as fair as they are. And women, I am afraid, are not always quite as fair as they should be. Well, my dear, number one came just before lunch. I told you of him, Dr. John Seward, the lunatic asylum man, with the strong jaw and the good forehead. He was very cool, outwardly, but was nervous all the time. He had evidently been schooling himself as to all sorts of little things, and remembered them. But he almost managed to sit down on his silk hat, which men don't generally do when they are cool. And then, when he wanted to appear at ease, he kept playing with a lancet in a way that made me nearly scream. He spoke to me, Mina, very straightforwardly. He told me how dear I was to him, though he had known me so little, and what his life would be with me to help and cheer him. He was going to tell me how unhappy he would be if I did not care for him. But when he saw me cry, he said that he was a brute, and he would not add to my present trouble. Then he broke off and asked if I could love him in time. And when I shook my head, his hands trembled. With some hesitation, he asked me if I cared already for anyone else. He put it very nicely, saying that he did not want to wring any confidence from me, but only to know, because if a woman's heart was free, a man might have hope. And then, Mina, I felt a sort of duty to tell him that there was someone. I only told him that much, and... As he stood up, and he looked very strong and very grave as he took both of my hands in his and said that he hoped that I would be happy, that if I ever wanted a friend, that I must count him one of my best. Oh, Mina, dear, I can't help crying. You must excuse this letter being all blotted. Being proposed to is all very nice and all that sort of thing but it isn't at all the happy thing when you have to see a poor fellow whom you know loves you, honestly, 
going away, looking all broken-hearted, to know that no matter what he may say at that moment, you are passing quite out of his life. My dear, I must stop here at present. I feel so miserable, though I am so happy. Arthur has just gone, and I feel in better spirits than when I left off, so I can go on telling you about the day. Well, my dear, number two came after lunch. He is such a nice fellow, an American from Texas. He looks so young and fresh. It seems almost impossible that he's been to so many places and has had such adventures. I sympathize with poor Desdemona when she had such a dangerous stream poured in her ear. I suppose we women are such cowards that we think a man will save us from fears, and we marry him. I know now what I would do if I were a man and I wanted to make a girl love me. No, I don't, for there was Mr. Morris telling us his stories, and Arthur never told any. And yet, I am somewhat previous. Mr. Quincy P. Morris found me alone. It seems that a man always does find a girl alone. No, he doesn't. For Arthur tried to make a chance, and I helping him all I could. I'm not ashamed to say it now. I must tell you beforehand that Mr. Morris doesn't always speak slang. That is to say, he never does so to strangers or before them for he is really well-educated and has exquisite manners. But he found out that it amused me to hear him talk American slang, and whenever I was present and there was no one to be shocked, he said such funny things. I am afraid, my dear, he has to invent it all, for it fits exactly into whatever else he has to say. But this is a way slang has. I do not know myself if I shall ever speak slang, I do not know if Arthur likes it. I've never heard him use any of it yet. Well, Mr. Morris sat down beside me and looked as happy and jolly as he could, but I could see all the same that he was very nervous. He took my hand in his and said ever so sweetly, Miss Lucy, I know I ain't good enough to regulate the fixings of your little shoes, but I guess if you wait till you find a man that is, you will go join them seven young women with the lamps when you quit. Won't you just hitch up alongside me and let us go down the long road together, driving in double harness? Well, he did look so good-humoured and so jolly that it didn't seem half so hard to refuse him as it did poor Dr. Seward. So I said as lightly as I could that I did not know anything of hitching, and that I wasn't broken to harness at all yet. Then he said that he had spoken in a light manner, and he hoped that if he had made a mistake in doing so, on so grave and so momentous an occasion for him, that I would forgive him. He really did look serious when he was saying it, and I couldn't help feeling a bit serious too. I know, Mina, you will think me a horrid flirt. I couldn't help feeling a sort of exultation that he was number two in one day. And then, my dear, before I could say a word, he began pouring out a perfect torrent of love-making, laying his very heart and soul at my feet. 
He looked so earnest over it that I shall never again think that a man must be playful always, and never earnest, because he is merry at times. I suppose he saw something in my face which checked him, for he suddenly stopped, and said with a sort of manly fervour that I could have loved him if I had been free. Lucy, you are an honest-hearted girl, I know. I should not be here speaking to you as I am now if I did not believe you clean grit right through to the depths of your soul. Tell me, like one good fellow to another, is there anyone else that you care for? And if there is, I'll never trouble you a hair's breadth again, but will be, if you will let me, a very faithful friend. My dear Mina, why are men so noble when we women are so little worthy of them? Here was I, almost making fun of this great-hearted true gentleman. I burst into tears, I'm afraid. My dear, you will think this a very sloppy letter in more ways than one. And I really felt very badly. Why can't they let a girl marry three men, or as many as want her, save all this trouble? But this is heresy, and I must not say it. I'm glad to say that, though I was crying... I was able to look into Mr. Morris's brave eyes, and I told him straight. Yes, there is someone I love, though he has not told me yet that he even loves me. I was right to speak to him so frankly, for quite a light came into his face. He put out both of his hands and took mine, and said in a hearty way, That's my brave girl. It's better worth being late for a chance of winning you than being in time for any other girl in the world. Don't cry, my dear. If it's for me, I'm a hard nut to crack, and I take it standing up. If that other fellow doesn't know his happiness, well, he'd better look for it soon, or he'll have to deal with me. Little girl, your honesty and pluck have made me a friend, and that's rarer than a lover. It's more unselfish, anyhow. My dear, I'm going to have a pretty lonely walk between this and kingdom come. Won't you give me one kiss? It'll be something to keep off the darkness now and then. You can, you know, if you like. For that other good fellow, he must be a good fellow, my dear, and a fine fellow, or you could not love him, hasn't spoken yet. That quite won me, Mina, for it was brave and sweet of him, and noble, too. And he was so sad, so I leant over and kissed him. He stood up with my two hands in his, and as he looked down into my face, I'm afraid I was blushing very much. And he said, Little girl, I hold your hand and you've kissed me, and if these things don't make us friends, then nothing ever will. Thank you for your sweet honesty to me, and goodbye. He wrung my hand, and taking up his hat, he went straight out of the room without looking back, without a tear or a quiver or a pause, and I'm crying like a baby. Why must a man like that be made unhappy, when there are lots of girls about who would worship the very ground that he trod on? I know I would if I were free, only I don't want to be free. My dear, this quite upset me. I feel I cannot write of happiness just at once. 
I don't wish to tell you of number three until it can all be happy. Ever your loving Lucy. P.S. About number three, I, I needn't tell you of number three, need I? Besides, it was also confused. It seemed only a moment from his coming into the room until both his arms were wrapped around me and he was kissing me. I am very, very happy, and I don't know what I have done to deserve it. I must only try in the future to show that I am not ungrateful to God for all of his goodness to me, sending me such a lover, such a husband, such a friend. Goodbye. Dr. Seward's Diary Kept in Phonograph 25th of May Ebb tied in appetite today. Cannot eat, cannot rest, so diary instead. Since my rebuff of yesterday, I have sort of an empty feeling. Nothing in the world seems of sufficient importance to be worth the doing. As I know that the only cure for this sort of thing was work, I went down amongst the patients. I picked out one who has afforded me a study of much interest. He is so quaint, and I am determined to understand him as well as I can. Today I seem to get nearer than ever before to the heart of the mystery. I questioned him more fully than I had ever done. With a view to making myself master of the facts of his hallucination, in my manner of doing it there was, I now see, something of a cruelty. I seemed to wish to keep him to the point of his madness, a thing which I avoid with the patience as I would the mouth of hell. Under what circumstances would I not avoid the pit of hell? Hell has its price. If there be anything behind this instinct, it will be valuable to trace it afterwards accurately. So I had better commence to do so. R. M. Renfield. Sanguine temperament. Great physical strength. Morbidly excitable. Periods of gloom, ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. I presume that the sanguine temperament itself and the disturbing influence end in a mentally accomplished finish. Possibly a dangerous man, probably dangerous if unselfish. In selfish men, caution is as secure an armour for their foes as for themselves. What I think of on this point is, when the self is the fixed point, the centripetal force is balanced with the centrifugal. When duty, a cause, etc., is the fixed point, the latter force is paramount, and only accident, or a series of accidents, can balance it. Letter from Quincy Morris to Arthur Holmwood my dear Art, we've told yarns by the campfire in the prairies and dressed one another's wounds after trying a landing at the Marquesas. We've drunk healths on the shore of Titicaca. There are more yarns to be told, and other wounds to be healed, and another health to be drunk. Won't you let this be at my campfire tomorrow night? I have no hesitation in asking you, as I know a certain lady is engaged to a certain dinner party, and that you are free. There will be only one other 
our old pal at the Korea, Jack Seward. He's coming too. And we both want to mingle our weeps over the wine cup and drink a health with all our hearts to the happiest man in all the wide world, who has won the noblest heart that God has made and the best worth winning. We promise you a hearty welcome, a loving greeting, and a health as true as your own right hand. We shall both swear to leave you at home if you drink too deep to a certain pair of eyes. Come. Yours as ever and always, Quincy P. Morris. Telegram from Arthur Homewood to Quincy Morris. Count me in every time. I bear messages which will make both of your ears tingle. Art. Chapter 6. Mina Murray's Journal. 24th July. Whitby. Lucy met me at the station, looking sweeter and lovelier than ever. We drove up to the house at the Crescent in which they have rooms. This is a lovely place. The Little River, the Esk, runs through a deep valley, which broadens out just as it comes near the harbour. A great viaduct runs across with high piers, through which the view seems somehow further away than it really is. The valley is beautifully green, and it is so steep that when you're on high land on either side you can look right across it, unless you're near enough to see down. The houses of the old town, the side away from us, are all red-roofed, and seem piled up one over the other anyhow, like the pictures that we see of Nuremberg. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes, and which is the scene of part of Marmion, where the girl was built up in the wall. It's a most noble ruin of immense size, and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There's a legend that a white lady is seen in one of the windows. Between it and the town there is another church, the parish one, round which is a big graveyard, all full of tombstones. This is, to my mind, the nicest spot in Whitby. It lies right over the town, and has a full view of the harbour, and all up the bay, to where the headland called the Kettleness stretches out into the sea. It descends so steeply over the harbour that part of the bank has fallen away. Some of the graves have been destroyed. In one place, part of the stonework of the graves stretches out over the sandy pathway far below. There are walks with seats beside them through the churchyard. People go and sit there all day, looking at the beautiful view, enjoying the breeze. I shall come and sit here very often myself and work. Indeed, I am writing now, with my book on my knee, listening to the talk of three old men who are sitting besides me. They seem to do nothing all day but sit up here and talk. The harbour lies below me, with on the far side one long granite wall stretching out into the sea, with a curve outwards at the end of it, in the middle of which is a lighthouse. A heavy sea wall runs along outside of it, 
On the near side, the seawall makes an elbow crooked inversely, and its end, too, has a lighthouse. Between the two piers there is a narrow opening into the harbour which then suddenly widens. It is nice at high water, but when the tide is out it shoals away to nothing, and there is merely the stream of the Esk, running between banks of sand, with rocks here and there. Outside the harbour on this side there rises for about half a mile a great reef, the sharp edge of which runs straight out from behind the south lighthouse. At the end of it is a boy with a bell, which swings in bad weather and sends a mournful sound on the wind. They have a legend here that when a ship is lost, bells are heard out at sea. I must ask the old man about this. He's coming this way. He's a funny old man. He must be awfully old. His face is gnarled and twisted like the bark of a tree. He tells me he's nearly a hundred, that he was a sailor in the Greenland fishing fleet when Waterloo was fought. He is, I am afraid, a very sceptical person, for when I asked him about the bells at sea and the white lady, he said very brusquely, I wouldn't fash myself about them, miss. Them things be all wore out. Mind, I don't say that they never was, but I do not say that there wasn't in my time. They be all very well for comers and trippers and the like, but not for a nice young lady like you. Them feet folks from York and Leeds be always eating cured errands and drinking tea, looking out to buy a cheap jet with creed or. I wonder myself who'd be bothered telling lies to them, even the newspapers, which is full of fool talk. I thought he would be a good person to learn interesting things from, so I asked him if he would mind telling me something about the whale fishing in the old days. He was just settling himself to begin when the clock struck six, whereupon he laboured to get up and said, I must be going home now, miss. My granddaughter doesn't like to be kept waiting when the tea is ready, for it takes me time to crammle noon the grease, for there be many of them. Miss Alack Belly Timber sailing by the clock. He hobbled away, and I could see him hurrying as well as he could down the steps. The steps are a great feature on the place. They lead from the town up to the church. There are hundreds of them. I do not know how many, and they wind up in a delicate curve. The slope is so gentle that a horse could easily walk up and down them. I think they must originally have had something to do with the abbey. I shall go home too. Lucy went out visiting with her mother, and as they were only duty calls, I did not go. They will be home by this. Dracula, Chapter 7, Mina Murray's Journal, 1st of August. I came up here an hour ago with Lucy. We had a most interesting talk with my old friend and the two others who always come and join him. He is evidently the Sir Oracle of them, and I should think must have been in his time a most dictatorial person. He will not admit anything, and downfaces everybody. If he can't out-argue them, he bullies them, and then takes their silence for agreement with his views. Lucy was looking sweetly pretty in her white lawn frock. She has got a beautiful colour since she's been here. 
I noticed that the old men did not lose any time in coming up and sitting near her when we sat down. She is so sweet with old people, I think they all fell in love with her on the spot. Even my old man succumbed and did not contradict her, but gave me double share instead. I got him on the subject of the legends, and he went off at once into a sort of sermon. I must try and remember and put it down. It'll be all full talk, lock, stock and barrel. That's what it be. Now else. These bands and wafts and bark ghosts and bar guests and boggles and all anent them. It's only fit to set bairns and dizzy women a bewildering. They be nowt but air blebs. They in all grims and signs and warnings be invented by parsons and illsome book bodies, railway touters to skeer and scunner halflings to get folks to do something that they don't otherwise incline to. Makes me eyeful to think of them. Why, it's them that, not content with printing lies and paper and preaching them out of pulpits, does want to be cutting them on tombstones. Look here, all around you, in what air you will. All them steens holding up their heads, as well as they can out of their pride. Simply tumbling down with the weight of the lies wrought on them. Here lies the body, sacred to the memory wrought on all of them, and yet in nigh half of them there bean't no bodies at all and the memories of them being cared a pinch of snuff about. Much less sacred. Lies, all of them. Nothing but lies, of one kind or another. My gog, it'll be a queer scoundment at dear judgment when they come tumbling up in their death sacks, all duped together and trying to drag their tombstones with them to prove how good they was. Some of them trembling and dithering, with their hands that dozened and slippy from lying in the sea that they can't even keep their grip of them. I could see from the old fellow's self-satisfied air and the way in which he looked around for approval of his cronies that he was showing off. So I put in a word to keep him going. Oh, Mr. Swales, you can't be serious. Surely these tombstones are not all wrong. Yablins. There may be a poorish few not wrong, saving where they make out the people too good. For there be folk that do think a barn bowl be like the sea, if only it be their own. The whole thing be only lies. Now look you here. You come here, stranger, and you see this Kirk Garth. I nodded, for I thought it better to assent, though I did not quite understand his dialect. I knew it had something to do with the church. He went on. And you can say that all these steens be a boon folk that be happed here, snod and snog. I assented again. Then that be just where their lie comes in. Why, there be scores of these lay beds that be tomb as old Dunn's backer box on Friday night. He nudged one of his companions, and they all laughed. My gog, how could they be otherwise? Look at that one. Read it. I went over and read. Edward Spenslar, Master Mariner, murdered by pirates off the coast of Andres, April 1854. When I come back, Mr. Swales went on. Who brought him home, I wonder, to Hapimir? Murdered off coast of Andres, and you can say it his body lay under. Why, I could name ye a dozen whose bones lie in the Greenland seas above, where the currents may have drifted em. There may be steens around ye. Ye can, with your young eyes, read the small print of the lies from here. 
this Braithwaite Lowry, I knew his father, lost in the lively off Greenland in twenty, or Andrew Woodhouse, drowned in the same seas in 1777, John Paxton, drowned off Cape Farewell a year later, or old John Rawlins, whose grandfather sailed with me, drowned in the Gulf of Finland in fifty. Do you think that all these men will have to make a rush to Whitby when the trumpet sounds? I have me anthems about it. I tell you, that when they got here, they'd be jumbling and jostling one another that way, that it'd be like a fight up on the ice of the old days, when we'd be at one another from daylight to dark, trying to tie up our cuts by the light of the Aurora Borealis. This was evidently a local pleasantry, for the old man cackled over it, and his cronies joined in with gusto. But, I said, surely you are not quite correct, for your start on the assumption that all the poor people, or their spirits, will have to take their tombstones with them on the Day of Judgment. Do you think that will be really necessary? Well, what else be their tombstones for? Answer me that, miss. To please their relatives, I suppose. To please their relatives, you suppose, he said with intense scorn. How will it pleasure their relatives to know that lies is wrought over them, that everybody in the place knows that there be lies? He pointed to a stone at our feet, which had been laid down as a slab on which the seat was rested, close to the edge of the cliff. Read the lies on that. The letters were upside down to me from where I sat, but Lucy was more opposite to them, so she leant over and read, Sacred to the memory of George Cannon, who died in the hope of a glorious resurrection on July 29th, 1873. Falling from the rocks at Kettleness, this tomb was erected by his sorrowing mother to her dearly beloved son. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Really, Mr. Swales, I don't see anything very funny in that. She spoke her comment very gravely and somewhat severely. You don't see how funny. But that's because you don't know the sorrowing mother was a hell cat that hated him because he was a crooked. A regular lamater he was. He hated her, so that he committed suicide in order that she mightn't get an insurance that she put on his life. He blew nigh the top of his head off with an old musket, one they had for scaring the crows with. That's the way that he fell off the rocks, and as to hopes of a glorious resurrection, I've often heard him say myself that he hoped he'd go to hell, for his mother was so pious that she'd be sure to go to heaven, and he didn't want to addle where she was. Now isn't that steen at any rate? He hammered it with his stick as he spoke, a pack of lies. And won't it make Gabriel keckle when Geordie comes panting up the grease with the tombstone balanced on his hump? and asks for it to be took as evidence. I did not know what to say, but Lucy turned the conversation as she said, rising up. Oh, why did you tell us all of this? It's my favourite seat, and I cannot leave it. And now I find I must go sitting over the grave of a suicide. Ah, that won't harm you, my pretty. And it make the poor Geordie gladsome to have so trim a lass sitting on his lap. That won't hurt you. Why, I've sat here off and on for the nigh twenty years past, and hasn't done me no harm. Don't ye fash about them as lies under ye, or that doesn't lie there either. 
it'll be time for ye to be getting scart when ye see the tombstones all run away with, and the place as bare as a stubble field. There's the clock. I must be gone. My service to ye, ladies. And off he hobbled. Lucy and I sat a while, and it was all so beautiful before us that we took hands as we sat. She told me all over again about Arthur and their coming marriage. That made me just a little heart-sick, for I haven't heard from Jonathan for a whole month. The same day, I came up here alone, for I am very sad. There was no letter for me. I hope there cannot be anything the matter with Jonathan. The clock has just struck nine. I see the lights scattered all over the town, sometimes in rows where the streets are and sometimes singly. They run right up the esk and die away in the curve of the valley. To my left the view is cut off by a black line of roof of the old house next to the abbey. The sheep and lambs are bleating in the fields away behind me, and there is a clatter of donkeys' hoofs up the paved road below. The band on the pier is playing a harsh waltz in good time. Further along the quay there is a Salvation Army meeting in a back street. Neither of the bands hears the other, but up here I hear and see them both. I wonder where Jonathan is and if he is thinking of me. I wish he were here. Dr. Seward's Diary 5th of June The case of Renfield grows more interesting the more I get to understand the man. He has certain qualities very largely developed. Selfishness, secrecy, and purpose. I wish I could get at what is the object of the latter. He seems to have some settled scheme of his own, but what it is I do not yet know. His redeeming quality is a love of animals, though, indeed, he has such curious turns in it that I sometimes imagine he is only abnormally cruel. His pets are of odd sorts. Just now his hobby is catching flies. He has at present such a quantity that I have had myself to expostulate. To my astonishment, he did not break out into a fury, as I expected, but took the matter in simple seriousness. He thought for a moment and then said, May I have three days? I shall clear them away. Of course, I said that would do. I must watch him. 18th of June. He has turned his mind now to spiders, and has got several very big fellows in a box. He feeds them with his flies, and the number of the latter is becoming sensibly diminished. Although he has used half his food in attracting more flies from outside to his room. First of July. His spiders are now becoming as great a nuisance as his flies. Today I told him he must get rid of them. He looked very sad at this, so I said that he must clear out some of them at all events. He cheerfully acquiesced in this, and I gave him the same time as before for reduction. He disgusted me much whilst I was with him, for when a horrid blowfly bloated with some carrion food buzzed into the room, 
He caught it, held it for a few moments between his finger and a thumb, and before I knew what he was going to do, he put it in his mouth and ate it. I scolded him for it, but he argued quietly that it was very good and very wholesome, that it was his life, strong life, it gave life to him. This gave me an idea, or the rudiments of one, where I must watch how he gets rid of his spiders. He has evidently some deep problem in his mind. He keeps a little notebook in which he is always jotting down something. Whole pages of it are filled with masses of figures, generally single numbers added up in batches. Then the totals are added in batches again, as though he were focusing some account, as the auditors put it. 8th of July. There is a method in his madness, and the rudimentary idea in my mind is growing. It will be a whole idea soon, and then, oh, unconscious celebration, you will have to give the wall to your conscious brother. I kept away from my friend for a few days, so that I might notice if there were any change. Things remain as they were, except he has parted with some of his pets and got a new one. He has managed to get a sparrow, and has already partially tamed it. His means of taming is simple for already the spiders have diminished. Those that do remain are well fed, for he still brings in the flies, tempting them with his food. 19th of July. We are progressing. My friend has now a whole colony of sparrows. His flies and spiders are almost obliterated. When I came in, he ran to me and said he wanted to ask me a great favour, a very, very great favour. As he spoke, he fawned on me like a dog. I asked him what it was, and he said, with a sort of rapture in his voice and bearing, a kitten, a nice little sleek, playful kitten that I can play with and teach and feed and feed and feed. I was not unprepared for this request. I had noticed how his pets went on increasing in size and vivacity but I did not care that his pretty family of tame sparrows should be wiped out in the same manner as the flies and the spiders. So I said I would see about it, and asked him if he would not rather have a cat than a kitten. His eagerness betrayed him as he answered, Oh yes, I would like a cat. I only asked for a kitten lest you should refuse me a cat. No one would refuse me a kitten, would they? I shook my head and said that at present I feared it would not be possible, but that I would see about it. His face fell and I could see a warning of danger in it. There was a sudden, fierce, sidelong look which meant killing. The man is an undeveloped homicidal maniac. I shall test him with his present craving and see how it works out. Then I shall know more. 10 p.m. I visited him again, and found him sitting in a corner brooding. When I came in, he threw himself on his knees before me and implored me to let him have a cat, that his salvation depended upon it. I was firm, however, and told him he could not have it, whereupon he went without a word, and sat down gnawing his fingers in the corner where I had found him. I shall see him in the morning, early. 20th of July.
visited Renfield very early before the attendant went his rounds, found him up and humming a tune. He was spreading out his sugar, which he had saved in the window, and was manifestly beginning his fly-catching again, and beginning it cheerfully and with good grace. I looked around for his birds, and not seeing them, I asked him where they were. He replied, without turning around, that they had all flown away. There were a few feathers about the room, and on his pillow a drop of blood. I said nothing, but went on and told the keeper to report to me if there was anything odd about him during the day. 11am. The attendant has just been to me to say that Renfield has been very sick, and disgorged a lot of feathers. My belief is, doctor, he said, that he's eaten his birds, and he took them and ate them raw. 11pm. I gave Renfield a strong opiate tonight, enough to make even him sleep. I took away his pocketbook to look at it. The thought that's been buzzing around my brain lately is complete, and the theory proved. My homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. I shall have to invent a new classification for him, and call him a Zoophagus, a life-eating maniac. What he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can. He has laid himself out to achieve it in a cumulative way. He gave many flies to one spider and many spiders to one bird. Then he wanted a cat to eat the many birds and what would have been his later steps. It would almost be worthwhile to complete the experiment. It might be done if only there were a sufficient cause Men sneered at vivisection, and look at its results today. Why not advance science in its most difficult and vital aspect, the knowledge of the brain? Had I even the secret of one such mind, did I hold the key to the fancy of even one lunatic, I might advance my own branch of science to a pitch compared with which Burden Sanderson's physiology or Ferrier's brain knowledge would be as nothing. If only there were a sufficient cause. I must not think too much about this, or I may be tempted. A good cause might turn the scale with me, for may not I too be of an exceptional brain, congenitally. How well the man reasoned. Lunatics always do within their own scope. I wonder at how many lives he values a man, or if at only one. He's closed the account most accurately, today begun a new record. How many of us begin a new record with each day of our lives? To me it seems only yesterday that my whole life ended with my new hope, and that truly I began a new record. So it will be until the great recorder sums me up and closes my ledger account with a balance to profit or loss. Oh, Lucy... Lucy, I cannot be angry with you, nor can I be angry with my friend whose happiness is yours. But I must only wait on hopeless and work, work, work. If only I could have as strong a cause as my poor mad friend there, a good unselfish cause to make me work, that would be indeed happiness. Mina Murray's Journal 
26th of July. I am anxious, and it soothes me to express myself here. It is like whispering to oneself and listening at the same time, and there is also something about the shorthand symbols that make it different from writing. I am unhappy about Lucy and about Jonathan. I had not heard from Jonathan for some time, and was very concerned. But yesterday, dear Mr. Hawkins, who is always so kind, sent me a letter from him. I had written asking him if he had heard, and he said the enclosed had just been received. It is only a line dated from Castle Dracula, and says that he is just starting for home. That is not like Jonathan. I do not understand it, and it makes me uneasy. Then to Lucy, although she is so well, has lately taken to her old habit of walking in her sleep. Her mother has spoken to me about it, and we've decided that I'm to lock the door of our room every night. Mrs. Westenra has got an idea that sleepwalkers go out on roofs of houses and along the edges of cliffs. Suddenly wakened, they fall over with a despairing cry that echoes all over the place. Poor dear. She's naturally anxious about Lucy, and tells me that her husband, Lucy's father, had the same habit. He would get up in the night, dress himself, and go out, if he were not stopped. Lucy is to be married in the autumn. She's already planning out her dresses and how her house is to be arranged. I sympathize with her, for I do the same. Only Jonathan and I will start in life in a very simple way, and she'll have to try to make both ends meet. Mr. Holmwood, he is the Honourable Arthur Holmwood, only son of Lord Godalming, coming up here very shortly, as soon as he can leave town, for his father is not very well. I think dear Lucy is counting the moments till he comes. She wants to take him up to the seat on the churchyard cliff, show him the beauty of Whitby. I dare say it's the waiting which disturbs her. She'll be all right when he arrives. 27th of July. No news from Jonathan. I'm getting quite uneasy about him. Though why I should, I do not know. But I do wish that he would write. If it were only a single line. Lucy walks more than ever. Each night I am awakened by her moving about the room. Fortunately, the weather is so hot she cannot get cold. But still the anxiety and the perpetually being wakened is beginning to tell on me. I'm getting nervous and wakeful myself. Thank God Lucy's health keeps up. Mr. Homewood's been suddenly called to ring to see his father, who's been taken seriously ill. Lucy frets at the postponement of seeing him, but it does not touch her looks. She's a trifle stouter, and her cheeks are a lovely rose pink. She's lost that anemic look which she had. I pray it will all last. 3rd of August. Another week gone, and no news from Jonathan. Not even to Mr. Hawkins, from whom I have heard. Oh, I do hope he's not ill. He surely would have written. I look at that last letter of his, but somehow it does not satisfy me. It does not read like him, yet it is his writing. There is no mistake of that. 
Lucy has not walked much in her sleep the last week, but there is an odd concentration about her which I do not understand. Even in her sleep she seems to be watching me. She tries the door, and finding it locked goes about the room searching for the key. 6th of August. Another three days, and no news. This suspense is getting dreadful. If I only knew where to write to, or where to go to, I should feel easier. But no one has heard a word of Jonathan since that last letter. I must only pray to God for patience. Lucy is more excitable than ever, but is otherwise well. Last night was very threatening. The fishermen say we're in for a storm. I must try to watch it and learn the weather signs. Today is a grey day, and the sun, as I write, is hidden in thick clouds, high over Kettleness. Everything is grey, except the green grass, which seems like emerald amongst it. Grey earthy rock, grey clouds tinged with the sunburst at the far edge, hanging over the grey sea, into which the sand points stretch like grey fingers. The sea is tumbling, tumbling in over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar, muffled in the sea mists drifting inland. The horizon is lost in a grey mist. All is vastness. The clouds are piled up like giant rocks, and there is a brule over the sea that sounds like some presage of doom. Dark figures are on the beach here and there sometimes half-shrouded in the mist, and seem men like trees walking. The fishing boats are racing for home, and rise and dip in the ground swell as they sweep into the harbour, mending to the scuppers. Here comes old Mr. Swales making straight for me, and I can see by the way he lifts his hat that he wants to talk. I've been quite touched by the change in the poor old man, when he sat down beside me, he said in a very gentle way, I want to say something to you, miss. I could see he was not at ease, so I took his poor old wrinkled hand in mine, and I asked him to speak fully. So he said, leaving his hand in mine, I'm afraid, my dearie, I must have shocked you by all the wicked things I've been saying about the dead and such like for the weeks past but I didn't mean them. And I want ye to remember that when I'm gone, we old folks that be daffled and with one foot abaft the crook hall don't altogether like to think of it. We don't want to feel scart of it, and that's why I've took to making light of it, so I'd cheer up my own heart a bit. But Lord love ye, miss, I ain't afraid of dying, not a bit. Only I don't want to die if I can help it. My time must be nigh at hand now, for I be old, and a hundred years is too much for any man to expect. And I'm so nigh that it might the old man is already wet in his scythe. You see, I can't get out of the habit of caffing about it all at once. The chafts will wag as they used to. Some day soon, the angel of death will sound his trumpet for me. But don't ye dull and greet, my dearie, for he saw that I was crying. If he should come this very night, I'd not refuse to answer his call.
for life be, after all, only a waiting for something else that what we're doing, and death be all that we can rightly depend on. But I'm content, for it's coming to me, my dearie, and it's coming quick. It may be coming while we be looking and wondering. Maybe it's in that wind out over the sea that's bringing in with it loss and wreck and sore distress and sad hearts. Look, look, he cried suddenly. There's something in that wind and in the host beyond that sounds and looks and tastes and smells like death. It's in the air. I feel it coming. Lord, make me answer cheerful when my call comes. He held up his arms devoutly and raised his hat. His mouth moved as though he were praying. After a few minutes' silence, he got up, shook hands with me and blessed me and said goodbye and hobbled off. It all touched me and upset me very much. I was glad when the Coast Guard came along with his spyglass under his arm he stopped to talk to me, as he always does, but all the time kept looking at a strange ship. "'I can't make her out,' he said. "'She's a Russian, by the look of her, but she's knocking about in the queerest way. She doesn't know her mind a bit. She seems to see the storm coming, but can't decide whether to run up north in the open or to put in here. Look, there again. She steered mighty strangely, for she doesn't mind the hand on the wheel. Changes about with every puff of wind. We'll hear more of her before this time tomorrow. And that is where we close the book tonight on this episode of Down to Sleep. Thank you so much for joining me. If you would like to hear the next episode of Dracula right now, you can do that at patreon.com slash down to sleep as we're always a few readings ahead over there on the Patreon. You get two episodes a week completed audiobooks and more so thank you for listening i hope that you have a very very peaceful night until next time remember there's a new episode here for free every monday so i will see you next week until then thank you and good night